Welcome back to Mark's Madness. Yeah, we are back. We are doing it again. Doing Took a it week again. off. We are refresh. Not a week off for you. Not you. You you never get a week off. No, no, no. It's it's <laughs> constant streams into your ears. But me and David took a week off from from recording to refresh the mind cells and all of those fun things. And we're back. Yes. And with that week off, David, is there anything current happening that you would like to talk about? Um, I I think people can keep up on the stuff Biden does. That's <laughs> well, it's uh, good. I think we're supposed to say. I think that people can. I think that people can keep up on current events. They don't need me. This whole podcast is just going to cease existing. <laughs> yeah, no, but <laughs> it's just. It's just, you know, I mean, Democrats doing all the things that Republicans did uh, that they promised to undo and nothing else like sudden that has to do with the world outside of the U.S. or or current topic I need to jump on. Yep. All right. Well, that being said, this is Mark's Madness and we do read books. So in that tradition in that fine tradition we're going to start uh, about halfway down page 402 of chap with chapter 10 we're doing uh the black proletariat in south carolina the first governor under the new regime was robert k scott born in pennsylvania a colonel of union troops during the war and assistant commissioner of the freedmen's bureau scott faced great difficulties and is generally conceded to have been a well-meaning man a well-born native Southern white was Franklin J. Moses Jr. His father, I just hate a well-born native Southern white. Ooh, ooh. That's a lot of adjectives to describe a person I'm not going to enjoy. Yeah. Um, also just the name Franklin J. Moses Jr. Oh, goody. His father had been a prominent South Carolinian senator before the war and was respected by all the people. Moses married the daughter of a distinguished Southerner, was private secretary to one of the former governors, and became a lawyer and an editor in favor of Johnson's Reconstruction. When the Reconstruction Acts were passed, he went over to the side of the carpetbaggers and Negroes. He took a prominent part in the Constitutional Convention and afterward became Speaker of the House and in 1872 governor. He was denounced as unscrupulous and dishonest and extravagant in his manner of living. The colored leaders formed a very interesting group. Francis L. Cardozo was freeborn of Negro, Jewish, and Indian descent. Wow, that is a lot of ways to get discriminated against right there. <laughs> Holy cow. You really picked the ho. Oh, okay, all right. He was educated at the University of Glasgow and in London went to New Haven where he served as a Presbyterian minister. After the war, he came to Charleston, was principal of the Avery Institute. He was Secretary of State during 1868 to 1872 and Treasurer of the State during 1872 to 1876. He was a handsome, well-groomed man with cultivated manners and an honest official in an honest and official life. He was accused in several instances, but no dishonest act was ever proven against him. Joseph H. Rainey was the first Negro to represent South Carolina in the House of Representatives. Robert Brown Elliott, born in Massachusetts, was educated at Eton College in England. He was a first-rate lawyer, served in the legislature, and was twice elected to Congress. He had a commanding presence and a fine gift of oratory. Richard A. Kane was leader and afterwards bishop in the AME Church. His paper, The Missionary Record, was the most influential Negro paper in South Carolina. He served in the Senate for two terms. He served in the Senate and two terms in Congress. Robert C. DeLarge was a tailor from Charleston and had been an agent in the Freedmen's Bureau. He served in the legislature, and while his education was limited, he had large influence. Beverly Nash had been a slave before the war and afterwards a waiter. When grown, he learned to read and write and became an earnest and hardworking leader. Alonzo J. Rainier was elected lieutenant governor in 1870. He was a free Negro and became a member of the Constitutional Convention of the Legislature and the Auditor of Charleston County. In 1872, he went to Congress. He made a good presiding officer of the state Senate, being dignified and alert. But, wait, huh? <laughs> you he know, was alert. awake. Yeah. He, he was. He no one snuck coffee. into the. No one snuck in on his watch. He was all over this. <laughs> Jeez. Richard H. Gleaves was lieutenant governor in 1872 to 1876. He was from Pennsylvania and acted as a probate judge. He was intelligent and knew parliamentary law. Samuel J. Lee was a Negro Speaker of the House in 1872 to 1874. 
He was born in the state, worked as a farmer and a laborer in lumber mills, and was self-educated. He was polished and a good lawyer. Stephen A. Swales was a colored man of Pennsylvania, was a Union soldier and schoolteacher. He became a senator and was known for his integrity and ability, ability as a speaker. Robert Smalls was the one who stole the Confederate... Oh, I know that story! Robert Smalls was the one who stole the Confederate ship planter and delivered it to Union authorities. There's a really good drunk history on that particular story. Um, Really? But that whole... Oh, my God, yeah. Do you not know? This is basically... Long story short... Um, um, and I'm going to butcher the story. I know it, but the guy the best essentially one day just decided, just decided like, I'm going to steal a Confederate boat and I'm just going to like me and all my friends are going to take this boat. We're going to steal it. We're going to just drive it straight up the river towards the union and then just like turn it over to the union. Um, there it is a great story nice. of, of a guy just not giving a fuck and just going for it. Um, nice. But yeah. It's very, it's a very, again, the drunk history on it, very good. Um, He was self-educated and popular. He was a member of Congress until after Reconstruction. These men were all poor and doubtless some of them accepted bribes and shared in graft. It's an interesting thing to say. Uh, But very few of them were thoroughly venal or purchasable against their convictions. When it came to personal favors or sharing in gifts and gains, which followed legislation of which they honestly approved, some of them were certainly approachable. Negroes were conspicuous members of the legislature. There was a large proportion of former slaves, and at first, perhaps two-thirds of them could not read or write. But by 1871, most of them had learned at least to read and write. Many of them were speakers of force and eloquence, while others were silent or crude. In the Senate, it was said that some of the colored members spoke exceedingly well, with great ease and grace of manners. Others were awkward and coarse. Almost like they're just a normal <laughs> some, subset of the human population. So some, some were not so good. Yeah. They were a mixed bag. Some great, some not great. You know, again, the human condition and all that. This, that, and the other. One observer recorded that the president of the Senate and the Speaker of the House, both colored, were elegant and accomplished men, highly educated, who could have credibly presided over the Commonwealth's Legislative Assembly. Over any Commonwealth's Legislative Assembly. Apologies. The majority of the voters of the state were Negroes, and in every session but one, that race had a majority in the legislature. They outnumbered and in many cases outshone their carpetbag and scalawag contemporaries. In the first legislature, there were 127 members, of whom 87 were colored and 40 white. According to the available figures, the composition of Reconstruction Legislature in South Carolina seems to have been as follows. There's a table. Charts and graphs. It outlines who's black and who's white in the Senate. It, it turns out it's almost always a majority black. Surprise, surprise. We've already gone over this. Moving yeah. on. David, you want to yeah. take over? Yeah. It will be seen from these figures that the white members of the legislature from our from their control of the Senate were always able to block Negro leg- legislatures and that Negro control of the legislature was only possible because most of the white senators voted with the Negroes. In the legislature of 1874, the whites had a majority in both houses. It can hardly be said, therefore, that Negroes of South Carolina had absolute control of the state at any time. The economic status of the legislature of 1870 to 1871 is shown by their given occupations and their their lawyers on down to a tailor. Uh, There's a whole list. Uh, The state sent seven Negroes to Congress, made two of them lieutenant governors, and for four years, two of them were speakers of the House. One was Secretary of the State and Treasurer of the State. Another was a student and inspection general. These men were various colors and mixtures of blood, and there was a good deal of difference of opinion as to whether mulattoes or the full-blooded blacks were superior. That's oh good. (laughs) (laughs) Back to blood quantum. That's right. But one observer asserted that the colored men generally were superior in decency and ability to the majority of the native white radical legislatures. And another said that the quadroons and octoroons of the Senate are infinitely superior in personal appearance to their white Yankee and native compeers. Compeers? I don't know. That that whole last I, sentence just felt rough. That, I mean, <laughs> I yeah, like it's a rough one. It's a rough one to read, buddy. It's a rough one to I, read. I don't, I don't no like any of that language. No one wants to read the word octoroon in the year no. of our Lord 2021. No, no, no. It just, it hurts. It hurts. 
Uh, most of these men had been slaves, although a few of them were well-educated. They had ability, and in some cases, more than ordinary ability. <laughs> but above all, they're in the midst of a mighty social and economic change, and were swayed by the social and political revolution around them. The bottom rail was on the top, and the ruling ol oligarchy was now displaced by those who represented neither the wealth nor the traditions of the state. The bitterness of this campaign against the Reconstruction governments was almost inconceivable. One unfamiliar with the situation would think that the editors and their correspondents had gone crazy with anger or were obsessed with some fearful mania so great was the ridicule, contempt, and obloquy showered upon the representatives of the state with the deepest scorn for a scalawag, with all the southern hatred for an adventuring Yankee, and with either sympathy or shame for the ignorant, misled Negro, the press, the aristocracy, the poor whites, the upcountry, the low country, all with one voice protested against the unlawful assembly in Columbia, maintained in power, they said, by the federal bayonet. The Farfield Herald battled against the hellborn policy which has trampled the fairest and noblest states of our great sisterhood beneath the holy hooves of African savages that God's gross to read and shoulder strap brigades. <laughs> the policy which has given up millions of our freeborn, high souled brethren and sisters, countrymen and countrywomen of Washington, Rutledge, Maryland, and Lee, to the rule of of glibbering, louse-eaten, devil-worshipping barbarians from the jungles of Dahomey and the peripatetic buccaneers of, from Cape Cod, Memphremagog, Hell, and Boston. What I, the fuck? I apologize that you had to read that paragraph because that was nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ. Memphremog. Where is Memphremog? Lake Memphremog is a freshwater glacial lake between Newport, Vermont and the United States and Magog, Quebec. It's basically a giant lake between the, the Vermont and huh. Canada border. Origin okay. of the name. The the lake is within the larger territory originally inhabited by the Abenaki tribe. The lake's name is denied from the Algonquin language. A new system of taxation came in with the Reconstruction government. It provided for a u uniform rate of assessment on all property at its full value. This was a departure from the system previous to this war, which put a low valuation on land and slaves and heavy taxation on merchants, professions, and bankings. Merchant before the war paid five or six times as great a rate of taxation as the planter. In 1859, the total tax value of lands in the state was 10257000 What? <laughs> I read it like that. Uh, while lots and buildings yeah. in Charleston were valued at $22 million. Uh, the tax on all the land of the state leveraged less than five cents an acre in 1860. When the new system came in, it was difficult to find persons to administer it, and every landholder objected to it. The new system met all sorts of opposition from unsympathetic administrators and the newspapers of the state. Governor Scott expected $300 million worth of property as a basis of taxation, but less than $115 million were returned. This, is the board of, this the Board of Equalization raised to $180 million. As the assessments decreased, the rate of taxation increased. The total assessment in 1869 was $181 million, and in 1877, under Hampton, $101 million. As the average rate of tax rose, the property holders said that the Negro government wanted to raise taxes so as to confiscate the land. The new government could not collect the tax levied. It meant an organized and bitter boycott of property. In 1868, $175,688 of assessed tax was uncollected. In 1869, $248,000. And in 1870, $524,000. A total of nearly a million dollars in three years. Part of this delinquency was due to real poverty, but part of it was due to deliberate obstruction on the part of property holders. See, again, very important. Are you not paying because you don't want to or are you not paying because you can't? Um, mm -hmm. And if you don't want to, what's your whole like reason for not wanting to? Is this this whole taxation is theft thing? If so, hmm. 
Taxation had to be increased to cover delinquency and to meet new expenses. In 1860, taxation on a half billion of property was 1,280,000. In 1870, it was 2,700,000. And that was assessed on $183 million of land. The increase of taxation was partly accounted for by gradually increased expenditures for education, construction, and charitable institutions. At the same time, the inflation of the currency makes comparison with conditions previous to the war difficult. More money was certainly raised by the state during Reconstruction, but on the other hand, a much larger proportion of the expenditures was designed to aid the laboring poor and did aid them largely. Indeed, it might have changed the whole economic position of the proletariat if it had been efficiently and honestly expended. In the legislature in 1868, the Free Common School was organized temporarily and permanently in 1870. Relief was extended to various classes of citizens, especially poor laborers. In 1868 and 1869, an act was passed providing for a land commissioner who was set to act under a board. Land was to be purchased in various parts of the state and was to be sold in plots of not less than 25 and not more than 100 acres to actual settlers. $200,000 worth of bonds were provided to finance this proposal, and later this was increased to 500000 The land commissioner was to hold office at the pleasure of an advisory board consisting of the chief state officers. One of the chief sources of corruption in nearly all reconstructed states was railroad building. And the re- uh, see, railroads, they're bad. Got to be careful, yeah. guys. Um, Especially at this time. <laughs> train bad. Train bad. <laughs> car, car good. We're the it's opposite of well, there's problem. Folks. There's your, uh, yes, no, train good. Uh, and the reasons for this are easily misconceived because of the changed economic status of railroads today. It must be remembered then that at the beginning throughout the country and the world, the railroad was a public highway, and for this reason, a public enterprise towards whose building and maintenance the public rightly contributed. It was only after the railroad was built and established by public funds that private interests monopolized it and sequestered its income to make individual millionaires. Mm-hmm. In the South, ra- the railroads had lagged. The planters would not submit to public taxation. Of course they wouldn't. And they would not divert <laughs> funds from their private luxury <laughs> consumption in order to furnish capital. South Carolina was particularly a case in point. Charleston, by all rules of commerce, should have been one of the great ports of the United States. It was a gateway to the West. It should have at least connected its own uplands with the coast, and it might have tapped the West through Cincinnati and the Great Cotton Belt through the Southern South. But efforts towards this end before the war had but small success. It was perfectly natural that the first of the first thought of those who were reconstructing the state should turn toward railroad building as a means of economic rehabilitation. The usual method was the old one of loaning credit of the state. It meant not that the state invested money, but simply that the state permitted the issue of bonds and guaranteed the payment of interest and principal. On a sound economic proposition conducted by honest men, this was simply a way of securing private capital for a semi-public enterprise, which would greatly increase the prosperity of the state. Railway mileage in South Carolina had increased from eight from 289 to 973 between 1850 and 60, but by 1865, there were 1,007 miles. The construction practically stopped at this point. An effort was turned toward rebuilding the railroads and giving them new equipment. The difficulty was that the flock was that a flock of cormorants, 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 whose business was cheating and manipulation in the issue and sale of bonds and other certificates of enterprise, moved first west and then south and took charge of railroad promotion. There were large; These were largely northern financiers, in some cases already discredited in the centers of finance and driven out of the overworked investment fields north and west. This feels very much like a mosquito land situation. This is very much <laughs> Gregor McGregor territory oh, right no. now, and I don't like no, any of it. No, no, no. Nope, I don't like any of this. Uh, They came south with an address and a technique which only trained, experienced, and honest administrators could have withstood. They flaunted the chances of quick and easy money before the faces of ruined planters, small northern investors, and the few Negroes who had some little capital. The result was widespread graft, debt, and corruption in South Carolina and North Carolina, in Florida and Georgia, in Louisiana, and in other states. There was, however, in the reorganization, for instance, of the Greenville and Columbia Railroad, nothing worse than the ordinary stock-jobbing enterprise common all over the nation, and prominent Southerners like ex-Governor Orr and J.P. Reed were concerned in it. 
Instead of concentrating efforts on the rebuilding of the railroad and its equipment, most of the time and energy was spent in seeking to market stock in New York. This failed, and the road was bankrupt by the end of the Reconstruction era, just as it was at the beginning. In the same way, the Blue Ridge Road, backed not only by carpetbaggers but by the leading white Southerners, was prostrate after the war and sued for state aid. The legislature aid the legislature authorized aid in 1868, but the contract for rebuilding demanded much more money than the bonds provided for. Eventually, the road was sold to a private company composed, as usual, not only of carpetbaggers but of planters. Matters were so manipulated that a state contingent liability of four million of bonds was transmuted into an actual state indebtedness of 1.8 million. Again, little was done actually to restore the road, and the company went into bankruptcy. Thus, in most cases, bankrupt corporations bequeathed to the Reconstruction regime by antebellum organizers came before the legislature to secure capital for rebuilding, and then fell into the hands of speculators who tried to make money out of the stock rather than out of the rebuilding of the road. And these speculators were largely men trained in shady finance and Wall Street and helped by much of the best elements of the Southerners in South Carolina, as well as by new carpetbag capitalists. Sounds just like great people. (laughs) this was a difficult situation calling for blame and criticism but to place the blame of it mainly upon the negro voter and the negro laborer is a fantastic distortion of the truth the money misused went primarily to northern promoters and southern white administrators and while of course a poverty-stricken electorate was gripped and bribed by such organized thieves the remedy for this was not and disenfranchisement of the labor, but its education, and such an increased share of the product of industry as to make life livable without theft or sale of soul. The appropriations to meet the new expenses had to grow. The fact is that South Carolina had been a state absolutely dominated by landed property. It is said that the antebellum state was ruled by 180 great landlords. They had made the functions of the state just as few as possible and did by private law and on private plantations most of the things which in other states were carried on by the local and state governments. The economic revolution, therefore, which universal suffrage envisaged for the state, was perhaps greater than in any other southern state. It was for this reason that the right of the masses to vote was so bitterly assailed, and expenditures for the new functions of the state denounced as waste and extravagance. The result of all this had to be increased taxation. The rate of taxation from 1868 to 1872 was 9 mills. In 1872 to 1876, over 11 mills. I'm not sure how to rate a mill in taxation. Um, Yet this was excessive. Yeah, I've got nothing. (laughs) It's not a unit of measure I use all the time. Is it a cubit? I know cubits. We'll do cubits. (laughs) Yeah, this was excessive only by comparison with the past and because of recent severe losses. In northern states like Illinois, Massachusetts, New York, and Pennsylvania, the average was 21 and a half mils on the dollar. Not a million dollar mils on the dollar because we got to know what the hell mills are. Uh, The grip of poverty on the South, and poverty always is felt most poignantly by those whom poverty has been unknown. The planters used to ease and in certain degree of luxury were the ones that felt new poverty as terrible, heaven-shattering thing. They looked upon any action as justifiable if it restored to them the income which they had lost. On the other hand, both the poor whites and the Negroes were not only poverty-stricken, but for that reason procurely peculiarly susceptible to petty graft and bribery. Economically, they had always been stripped bare. A little cash was a curiosity and a few dollars of fortune. The sale of their votes and political influence was therefore from the first simply a matter of their knowledge and conception of what the vote was for and what it could procure. With experience, their conception of its value rose until some of them conceived the idea of making the ballot a power by which they could change their social and economic status and live like human beings. But before most of them rose to this conception, there were thousands to whom their vote was and petty office holding were simply a means of adding to their small incomes. 
And when one considers that this was a day when the line between using political power of personal advantage and using it for social uplift was dim and difficult to follow throughout the whole nation. The wonder is that the labor vote of the South Carolina so easily ranged itself behind the new school system, the orphanages, the land distribution, and the movements toward reform and public, efficient, public efficiency. The ascendancy of poverty over labor and the suffrage was in this day openly maintained by bribery. And if this had been uncommon in the pre-war South, it was simply because universal suffrage had not been established and capital ruled by social sanction rather than by money. In the new situation, property began systematically to attack labor in two ways. First, it deliberately encouraged extravagance, graft, and bribery, but so as to hasten the downfall of the labor regime. Secondly, it utterly upset the credit of the state so as to prevent the new state from importing capital. The failure of taxation to raise the required revenue compelled the state to borrow, and here it fell into the hands of northern money, or northern money sharks and southern repudiators. The state debt, October 1, 1867, was $8.3 million. The Constitutional Convention of 1868 repudiated $3, th- $3 million of this as Confederate debt and made the total debt $5.4 million. From this beginning, the state debt increased to $10.6 million in 1871, while committees claimed that there was evidence of total liabilities outstanding to the amount of 15 or even 30 millions. The exact amount of the debt was not known. The figures from the reports of the Treasurer, Comptroller General, and Financial Agent did not agree, and it was claimed by the opposition press and even by some of the state officials, that there were large issues of fraudulent bonds on the market, and that certain of the state officials have profited thereby. While the conservative press continually reviled the radical government, on no topic was it so prolific or bitter as the finances of taxation. The total debt seems to and be, and it was 1860. It was then there's a million. chart, and it goes, yeah. and it, it goes from 12 million to 22 million. It gets bigger. The no, number line go up, <laughs> number get bigger. Yeah, there you go. In this case, the total. In ind- this case, the total indebtedness in 1871 is not clear. The governor's report makes it a little less than 12 million, but the investigation committee insists that because the state government had printed and issued certain bonds, the amount of which was not de- definitely known, it was possible that the state might eventually be liable for 30 million dollars. This did not mean, as many assumed, that the state officials received or squandered any such sums. The method by which small amounts of actual cash received became a paper debt of huge amounts is explained in the governor's special message of January 9, 1865. In the fall of 1868, I visited New York City for the purposes of borrowing money on the credit of the state on coupon bonds under the provisions of the Acts of August 26, 1868. I had the assistance of Mr. H.H. H. Kimpton, United States Senator F.A. Sawyer, and Mr. George S. Cameron. I called at several of the most prominent banking houses to effect the negotiation of the required loan, and they refused to advance any money upon our state securities, for those securities had been already branded with the threat of speedy repudiation by the political opponents of the administration, whoever, who have ever since howled the same cry against the state credit as the persons who made this threat controlled the press of the state, they were enabled to impress capitalists abroad with the false idea of a speedy reaction that would soon place them again in authority." As the capitalists well knew that these persons, when in power in 1862, did repudiate their debts due northern creditors, their distrust of our bonds was very natural and apparently well-founded. It soon became evident to every man familiar with our financial standing in New York that to negotiate the loan authorized, the question was not what we would take for the bonds, but what we could get for them. After much effort and the most judicious management, I succeeded in borrowing money through Mr. Cameron at a rate of $4 in bonds for $1 in currency. The bonds being rated at 75% per below their par value or at 25 cents on the dollar. This loan, however, was only affected at the extravagant rate of 1.5% per month or 18% a year, a rate only demanded on the most doubtful paper to cover what is deemed a great risk for the money loaned. Subsequent loans were affected at a higher valuation of the bonds, but at the rate of interest varying from 15 to 20%, in addition to commissions necessary to be paid to the financial agent, 
If then 3.2 million in money has cost the state 9.5 million in bonds, it does not therefore follow that the financial board has criminally conspired against the credit of the state, and still less that any one member of the board can justly be held to the public exoration or stigmatization by an accused of by an accusation of high crimes and misdemeanors for the assumed results of its action. It is proper that I should add that the armed violence which has prevailed in this state for the past three years has upon our bonds the same effect as actual war in lessening their purchasing value as money is dearer in war than in peace. Ku Kluxism made capitalists shrink from touching the bonds of this state as a man would shrink from touching a pestilential body. If there were outstanding in 1874 20 or even 30 millions of evidences of debt, it is unlikely that this represented more than 10 millions in actual cash delivered, and all the monies collected and paid beyond that were not the stealing necessarily of South Carolinians, white or black, but the financial graft of Wall Street and its agents made possible by the slander and reaction of the planters." The rise of a group of people is not simultaneous shift of the whole mass. It is a continuous differentiation of individuals with inner strife and differences of opinion so that individuals, groups, and classes begin to appear seeking higher levels, groping for better ways, uniting with other like-minded bodies and movements. Every indication of this was present among Negroes during Reconstruction times. There was not a single reform movement, a single step toward protest, a single experiment for betterment in which Negroes were not found in varying numbers. The protest against corruption and inefficiency in South Carolina had in every case Negro adherents and in many cases Negro leaders. The responsibility of Negroes for the government of South Carolina in Reconstruction was necessarily limited. They helped choose the elected officials and furnished a large number of the members of the legislature. But of the administrative power was in the hand but most of the administrative power was in the hands of the whites, and those were either northerners who had come south as officers or officials or to invest money, or native southerners, both aristocrats and poor whites who had undertaken to guide the Negro vote. David As a majority of the electorate, Negroes were responsible for the officials elected, but their choice was limited. They had among themselves a few notable leaders, some educated in the North and a few educated Southern Negroes, and other Southern Negroes with little formal education but but much hard sense. Three groups gradually formed themselves among the whites, like General Orr, who represented the planters who were willing to accept the Negro suffrage as a fact, others like Wade Hampton, proposed to control the Negro vote, but to control it in the interests of the planters and eventually to limit if in the various ways. Then there was a third party led by men like B.F. Perry, who wanted to exclude the Negro entirely from the ballot and do this as soon as possible, frankly on lines of race and color. Perry feared a union of poor whites and Negroes and saw in this the menace of the proletarian revolution and an attack on property. Oh God, property. I greatly fear that many white persons in South Carolina who will vote for a convention under the hope of its repudiation, the indebtedness of the state, this class may influence the Negro vote to unite with them. And then in return, they can unite with the Negro in parceling out the lands of the state. One step leads to another, stay law, first repudiation next, and then follows a division of land and an equal appropriation of property amongst all persons. And last of all, honest, hardworking, industrious, and prudent class must support the idle, dissipated extravagance of a roguish class. It is this last group that eventually dominated and transported to South Carolina the Mississippi plan of overthrowing the Negro vote by brute force. The path of black leaders under these circumstances was exceedingly difficult. Many Negroes of importance, such as Rainey, Lomax, and King, openly attacked the course of Republican administration. R.H. King formed a Negro reform movement and said, We would favor to send to the legislature honest mechanics and farmers whose minds are not biased by what chicanery? Chicanery. 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 Okay. At any rate, have honest men whose minds are not biased by chicanery oh, who are identified with prosperity and the people's interest. 
But on the other hand, most Negroes were afraid of the combination with the white planters, who clearly would disenfranchise them if they had the chance. As the state debt increased, a taxpayers' convention met in Columbia in May 1871. With 30 counties represented and a few Negro delegates, it protested against the increase in the public debt and the high taxation and attacked the financial legislation. It warned persons not to buy bonds or obligations issued by the present state government because the property holders would not adequate, be adequately represented in legislature. Several Negroes were members of this convention, and the same year, leading Negroes, including DeLarge, Nash, Robert, Smalls, tried to form a new political party. It was admitted that there were abuses which needed reformation, but on the whole, the Republican Party was gratified at the result of the Taxpayers' Convention. A joint committee of legislature made an examination of the financial condition of the state 1871. This extended over several months. It declared that the total bonded debt of the state was $15.7 million. This joint committee denounced the state officials, the land commission, and the financial agent. An attempt was made to impeach Scott and Parker, the treasurer, and it was charged that they bribed members of the legislature to stop the proceedings. In this way, doubt was spread upon the validity of much of the bonded debt, and the credit of the state was almost entirely destroyed. There was no money in the treasury and no way of meeting expenses. Northern capitalists were warned repeatedly about taking the bonds. With all this undoubted efforts to improve the state, an orphan asylum was authorized in, 18, in 1869. The poor of the state were provided for in 1870, and this system was kept after the whites came into power. An institution for the deaf, dumb, and blind was started in 1871. It lasted until 1873, and the faculty resigned because they were ordered to accept colored students. A lunatic asylum was provided for colored patients and colored patients admitted, casting aside all questions of race and forgetting temporarily its setting among a severely defeated and hostile people. But bearing in mind the uniqueness of the new experiment, an experiment of universal education among persons unaccustomed to such, this free public school system and this relief for unfortunates transformed the role of the poor whites in the educational and political history of South Carolina and in, in, inculcated in most of the hearts of the blacks a vision which citizenry and the world must admire. In 1872, the Republican Party split Moses ran for governor while the reform Republicans nominated Chamberlain. Negroes were on both tickets. Moses, a white Southerner with aristocratic connections, won, and his administration was the most corrupt of the Reconstruction period. Negroes were alarmed and, despite the risk to their status, turned toward reform. They saw that it was not enough to vote. They must exercise greater control over administration of affairs. Moses was eventually criminally indicted while in office, but he escaped conviction on a technical point since his retirement from executive care cares, ex-governor Moses adventures and financial exploits in Northern cities have furnished the local reporters of police courts with not a few disgraceful items. Had it not been for Southern men of this and the Swepson type men of high social standing, and they were in every reconstructed state, the Northern adventurers would have been far less successful in their spolations. 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 Yes, right. All right, cool. I, I would think it'd be like spoilations. I don't know. Like spoilations? Spo- but it's not. It's not it's, spoil because no, the I would come before. So it's spoilations. Yeah. yeah. Yep, yep, yep. They would have been less successful in their schemes. We'll go with schemes. A second taxpayers convention met in February 1874. The legislature replied to its charges that the cost of government had increased only 38 cents per capita. It said that the appropriations for schools, lunatic asylums, penitentiaries, and orphan asylums had been increased, while the public debt had been increased only about $5 million, and that the taxpayer convention was composed of the former ruling class which wanted to regain power. 
The effort of Negroes at reform was severely and definitely handicapped by the attitude of the whites. If they joined with the whites in the reform, then they joined a party which was more and more determined to disenfranchise them and eliminate them from public life and impoverish them in economic life. If it was considered, if it was this consideration that kept leaders like Elliott and Cardozo fighting within their own party because they saw only in the Republican Party any protection for their rights and they believed that the matter of Negro suffrage and economic progress was more important than even the driving out of grafters and inefficient politicians. It was difficult and de- it was a difficult and desperate alternative, but they saw no way out. Even when reform movements under Chamberlain began, Negroes were apprehensive. Reform was in sight. In 1874, progressive and intelligent leaders of the party, including many of the colored leaders, elected D.H. Chamberlain as governor. And the reforms which he inaugurated and carried out, carried through, were attested by the white people of the state. The Charleston News and Courier said he stands like a wall of granite between an obstinate people and those who seek by a foul move to rob them. The Charlotte Observer called him a model governor. The Grange declares he was fulfilling the pledges made alike to conservative and Republican. The Barnwell Sentinel said that the governor will support no measure or policy that does not tend to advance the interest of South Carolina. A public meeting in Charleston gave him thanks for the bold and statesmanlike struggle he has made in the cause of reform and the economic administration of the government. The News and Courier in June says, by supporting Mr. Chamberlain, the whole country will secure without resolution, without revolution, a government in every way satisfactory. The Chamberlain reforms consisted in retrenchment of the annual expenses of the state by nearly $2 million and an attempt to drive out the grafters who had been robbing the state. Many leading Negroes supported him, but others did not. Those who would not, like Elliot, had no confidence in the white Southerners behind him. Mm, yeah, I mean, valid critique. Yeah. Here was a chance for white Carolina here was a chance for white Carolina to unite with the progressive northerners and negroes and usher in honest and efficient government without disturbing the right of black men to vote and the right of labor to strive through universal suffrage for its interests. When some negro leaders refused to follow Chamberlain, this was from no opposition to reform. It was because they saw Chamberlain surrendering many respects to those white elements in the state who were pledged to degrade negroes and who were ref- using reform as a stepping stone and an excuse for disenfranchisement. It was a cruel dilemma, but their fears and suspicions proved true. David The colored speaker of the house in 1874 said of the colored voters We, as a people, are blameless of misgovernment. It is owing to bad men, adventurers, persons who, after having repeated millions almost from our party, turn traitors and stab us in the dark. Ingratitude is the worst of crimes, and yet the men we have fostered, the men we have elevated and made rich, now speak of our corruption and venality and charge us with every conceivable crime. Independent radicals met October 2, 1874, and nominated John T. Green and Martin R. Delaney as governor and lieutenant governor. They said, We cordially invite the whole people of the state to support the nominees of the convention as the only means of preserving their common interests, especially requesting the conservatives have persistently declared that their desire was only for good government without regard to partisan politics to support the independents. Colored Congressman Rancier of South Carolina said in his speech Charleston, March 9, 1871, I am no apologist for the thieves, for if I were, I do not think I would have occupied for so long this time and a place in your confidence. On the contrary, I am in favor of a most thorough investigation of the official conduct of any and every public officer in the connection of discharge of whose duties anything like the well-grounded suspicion. And to this effect have I spoken time and again, nor am I lukewarm on a subject of better government in South Carolina than that which seems to be bearing heavily on all classes and conditions of society today. Still, recognizing that which I believe to be true, that such is the determined opposition to the Republican Party and its doctrines by our opponents that no administration of our affairs, however honest, just, and economical, would satisfy any considerable portion of the democratic masses of the state in South Carolina. And satisfied with the principles and policy of the great Republican Party to which I belong, are best adapted for the promotion of good government to all classes of men, our party leaders, and should 
be judicious in dealing with the situation. And again, when you were called upon in your primary meetings in your country and state nominating conventions, let each man act as if by individual vote he could wipe out the odium of the odium resting upon our party and help to remove the evils that afflict us at, a pre- at present. Let him feel black or white that the country holds him responsible for the shortcomings of this party and that it demands him the elevation to the public positions of men who are above suspicion. Let each man feel that upon him individually rests the work of reform. Let each man feel that he is responsible for every dollar of the public money fraudulently used, for every schoolhouse closed against his children, for every dollar taxation in excess of the reasonable and legitimate expenses. In short, let every man feel that society at large will hold him to the party accountable for every misdeed administration of government. And will credit him with every honest effort in the interest of the people and the interest of the good government whereby the community as a whole is best protected and the equal rights all guaranteed and made safe. This curious charge is often made that Negroes devoted all their energies to politics. Had this been true, their labor could never have restored the cotton crop, the naval stores industry, and the whole economic fabric in the state. In their fight, they sought to use not only political, but economic weapons. The pressure for land and taxation of landholders gradually yielded results. By 1880, the 33,000 plantations of 1860 were divided among 93,000 small farmers. In 1866, the Charleston branch of Freedman's Bank had deposits of $18,000. In 1870, $165,000. In 1873, $350,000 belonged to 5,500 depositors, showing that this was the savings of the poor and not the capital of the petty bourgeois. Only about 200 of the depositors were white. The colored people had accounts ranging from $0.05 cents to $1,000. When the bank failed in 1874, the Charleston branch owed 5200 debtors a total of $253,000. The Beaufort branch owed 1,200 debtors $77,000. A Negro labor movement... A Negro labor movement began in November 1869. A state labor convention met in Columbia with Robert B. Elliott as president. They asked for one half share of the crop for farm laborers or a stated wage of 70 cents to $1 a day. They demanded a commissioner to supervise labor contracts, reduce rates, and stop the postponement of suits to recover portions of crops due for service. They tried to secure laws to prevent the discharge of laborers before they were paid and the removal of crops before satisfactory settlement. They objected to the working of plantations by gangs and wished to lease farms. There were serious labor difficulties in 1876. Through a strike of farm laborers in Colton County, they threatened to destroy the crops of the planters. Another strike occurred in the rice fields of Buford County, where 200 Negroes at the harvest time demanded an advance of 50% in wages. They imprisoned scabs in the outhouses and overpowered a sheriff and his posse. But the government sent the colored leader, Robert Smalls, with a company of militia, and the mob was dispersed. I inquired whether the black laborers should have shown any disposition to violent outbreaks such as occurred in several West Indies islands, but I could only hear of one such case when the hired laborers in some of the rice plantations of South Carolina struck for wages and used much violence towards non-strikers, hunting them down without whips. Hunting them about with whips. Wow. that's That changes that sentence a little bit. (laughs) That completely flips it. (laughs) (laughs) The whites attempting to apprehend the rioters were mobbed, and the affair at one time looked very serious. But by the aid of the influential black politicians, the matter was accommodated, and the laborers have since worked well and quietly. I am told that though in the immediate demands the blacks were in the wrong, they had much of the ground of complaint. They had much ground of complaint owing to the practice of some of the employers, who not being able to pay the wages earned and due, put the laborers off with checks upon stores kept on the truck principle. One of the best Negro unions was the Longshoremen's Protective Association of Charleston. In 1875, it was described as the most powerful organization of the colored laboring class in South Carolina. 
500 of its 800 members held an exceedingly credible parade with members well-dressed and good-looking. It had successfully conducted a number of strikes, and it was the most successful labor union among Negroes. Under exceedingly difficult circumstances and handicapped by their... by their necessary ignorance and lack of experience, often deliberately misled both by Southerners and Northerners, planters and poor whites, the Negroes in legislation and in self-control had made an excellent record. The group control exercised by the South Carolina Negroes was remarkable. Their leadership distinctly showed showed more ability and character than that of either the carpetbaggers or the scalawags. That being said, this is Ben Mark's Madness Pod. <laughs> I don't know how I'll stand. I'll stand this week. That 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 seems like as good a place as any to to, to to pause for the week. Yeah. Um, fifteen pages. Y'all got fifteen pages this week, and I promise we're not going to delete this one. We have to redo <laughs> it again. Please God. <laughs> But no, that has been that has been this this installment of Mark's Madness Pod. We are uh, a podcast that reads books. That being said, there are a number of different ways that you can get in touch with us. Um, most of them rely on one or both of us being on top of it, and sometimes that's just not the case. And I apologize if, for whatever reason, your message gets missed. Uh, know that we love you and we're not trying to ignore you. It's just there's a lot of spam messages that show up. Um, and so sometimes sometimes stuff gets slipped through the cracks. Um, um, please reach out at any time. Um, easiest way to reach out is probably email, which is marksmadnesspod at gmail.com. That goes directly to us. Um, assuming it doesn't get caught in the spam filter, which a, a couple messages I've noticed have. So I apologize for that. We're going to try and get back to everybody. Um, beyond that, you can reach out to us on Twitter. Uh, we are Mark's Mad- at Mark's Madness Pod on Twitter. Um, and if you wanted a more one-on-one sort of situation or uh, just a more community-based little situation, you can join the Discord. Our Discord is the, the Mark's Madness Pod Discord. It's in, The link is in our Twitter bio. Um, and if you have any problems getting in, by all means, again, tweet us or DM us on, on Twitter and let us know you're having trouble getting in. We can get you that link, no problem. That being said, this has been Mark's Madness Pod. We read books. My name is Nathan. My name's David. And we will talk to you all next week. Bye. Bye.